0: Welcome back to Better Thinking. My name is Nesh Nikolic, and today's guest is Dr. Roy Sugarman, here to talk to us about psychology and the role of biology. Roy's biography is extremely extensive. He's got a wealth of experience working with young persons, adults, in coaching atmospheres, corporate atmospheres, and obviously in a clinical atmosphere. He practices in Sydney in two different practices. Best place to look at his bio is to go to RoySugarman.com, otherwise I'll bore you for the next uh, 15 minutes going through all of his achievements and accolades and the like, but highly experienced clinician here to talk to us about what I think is incredibly fascinating, looking at how these two worlds come together, not only psychology, but our biology, and I think Roy has got a really interesting perspective about those two worlds coming together. So please welcome Dr. Roy Sugarman. Roy, a big
1: thank you for coming onto the show. Thank you for getting me here. That's great. Such fun.
0: Look, I'm really excited to talk about, you know, psychology and biology and and, and the two worlds coming together. I know it's something that you're very passionate about and you've got great experience across working with children, young persons, all the way to performance athletes. Um, Where should we start?
1: (laughs) Um, well, you know, where I started was I decided years ago when I was running restaurants and doing all kinds of things. And I went to university a few years in a row and landed up just doing a degree and then realized when I'd signed on that it was a degree in biological psychology, you know, and it was a three year undergraduate, which I did part time while running restaurants. So two in the morning till six in the morning you know, sitting, writing some kind of project and, you know, falling asleep and, um, you know, and then wrote 13 exams in 10 days to finish off the degree. And I remember falling asleep in the bath and wondering if I could learn to breathe underwater, you know, which was going to be my life since then was breathing underwater. Um, But, you know, the first thing somebody said to me after I finished my degree, what did you learn? And I said, the first thing I learned is you cannot use a rational argument to undo an idea that somebody got irrationally. And it was really weird because, you know, when I started my honors degree and then master's degree and doctoral degrees, um, they would always ask, you know, you must be interested in people and, and, you know, how do you make sense of, of people? And I say well, the first thing I learned is that you cannot make sense of human behavior. Because as Sapolsky says, you know, in the split second in the minutes, in the hours, in the days, in the millennia, in the 200,000 years before a behavior, um, you cannot make sense of it unless you understand emotion. And how do you understand emotion when emotional arguments are not subject to rationality? You know, and everybody was doing fine and then along comes Trump (laughs) and they get it. (laughs) You cannot use a rational explanation to undo an idea that was created irrationally, emotionally. So that fascinated me. And so I see the brain as, as just a, a battleground between psychology and biology. And the astonishing thing is that people don't get it.
0: Can you explain that a little bit in terms of uh, how that came about, where, where, where you became aware of that? What was that, that sort of um, uh, point where that dropped for you in, in terms of that, you know, there's there's an yeah. irrationality that that's kind of built in our emotions versus in our in our logic.
1: So and you know, years before um, Dan Ariely spoke of the you know irrational the rational irrationality of human beings from an economic point of view and long before a lot of this stuff came out, I started to see the works of Bill Miller and Steve Rolnick coming out where they were saying Um, what happens in psychology is really how do you create a warm relationship in which the person can make their own arguments? What are the emotional drivers behind human motivation? And more importantly, you cannot change someone with a web of inspiring speech and concepts of resistance from Paul Dell and others, and began to realize, whoa, the study of psychology is the study of irrationality, of emotion. And it's got nothing to do with the intellect. Um, you know, you can do an IQ test, uh, which predicts how you're going to do in, in a Western um, educational system. Or um, that's all very fine. And, you know, you can do all these projective tests of Rorschach and draw a person. And <laughs> I was just looking at this going, I don't get it. Um, so when Steve Rolnick and, uh, and Bill Miller came out with, in 1987, their first real exposition of the book, motivational interviewing, and later on, Dan Pink and others would jump on the bandwagon, it occurred to me that motivating people was creating a warm relationship in which they could encounter their own resolve to change. We were not going to get anywhere with psychology unless we understood the biology of irrationality. And that meant to me there was a struggle going on in the brain, and I wanted to know who was going to (laughs) win. You know, and then as I got more into the neuroscience of the mesial temporal lobes and how the lateral temporal lobes work and how the two of them struggle to reconcile in the role of the frontal lobes, you know, doing the difficult thing that's the right thing to do in Sapolsky terms, then I began to be more use in studying traumatic brain injury, in studying psychosis, in studying mood and anxiety disorders and it made sense to me that diagnosis in terms of a label was useless. How do we describe human behavior in terms of the seconds, minutes, hours, 100,000 years before? Um, the research that started to come out was scary to think that we have this rational view that we know what's going on, we have no clue. <laughs> you know, the arguments about free will and the argument oh, rubbish. 95% is the subconscious mess, and the rest is janitorial and cleaning it up. And when I began to work with Brain Resource and other companies, I began to realize that what we do is we spend our lives with these post hoc rationalizations of how we feel, what we feel, and how we make sense of why we hate or love. Absolute rubbish. <laughs> um, you know, which is quite frightening when you're basically a scientist. And then you discover what you're studying is rubbish. If you can understand rubbish, my old professor used to say, if you can understand nonsense, you can understand reality. So it was such fun. <laughs> so how would you describe the free, free will? What free will? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, I think that, that when you really think about free will, when you think about God, when you think about religion, when you think about Martin Luther being an obsessive-compulsive schizotypal personality, heaven forbid, uh, and that what he was doing was really, you know, he wrote, the more I wash my hands, the dirtier they get. I go, ooh, you should have had some meds there, man. But then we wouldn't have Protestantism. Um, you know, what did I make of it? You know, how did I make stuff out of it? I got depressed when I realized there was no free will. Um, and that was, that was scary when I realized in the shape of one minute, there was no evolution in terms of creationism, um, when you could demonstrate that with simply showing some hand movements and, and why somebody tinkered with it and didn't make it from scratch, um, you then run into all the irrationality of human beings because you realize there is no free will. This is a mopping up janitorial exercise in cleaning up the mess you just made without knowing why you made it. And that was the human condition. Very depressing, you know, very depressing. So one would argue on the other
0: side, and that's obviously part of my role in, in, in this podcast to, to, to push topics around, one would argue to say, look, I do have free will. I um, choose how I you know, respond with my children or what I do with my children, what I'm going to do on the weekend, i do some planning. Uh, uh, where, what, what am I not seeing in that, in that picture?
1: What you're not seeing is is the science of putting people in scans, in or doing experiments, and realizing that um, you think you're making choices, uh, you think you're making rational choices. And let's just look at a few studies that kind of blow holes in that. Study of a thousand Israeli judges, and we got you know the we when I speak we I mean scientists who actually do experiments, not those who read about you know intellectual gunners like me. But we studied a thousand Israeli judges decisions on parole and the judges wrote about their parole decisions in each case, why they chose to give parole or not. And then they ran it through all kinds of, you know, nice reductionistic experiments and discovered the single feature of the judge's decision was how recently they'd had a meal. You know, good Jewish judges can't live for more than two hours without food. Um, if you went straight off to lunch for parole, 60, 70% chance of getting it. Two hours later, zero chance. These judges were rationalizing the decisions. Choosing whether someone's guilty or, or innocent is a rational decision. Choosing whether to punish them or not, completely irrational. If I'm getting a job interview done, and the person interviewing me is sitting on a hard chair the chances are they're not going to be too happy with me and probably see me as hard, uncompromising, difficult. It's kind of uncomfortable around this guy. And if they're in a nice comfortable chair, I've got a much better chance of being seen as accommodating warm and whatever. And God help me if they're holding a cold latte in their hands while they're doing it instead of a warm cappuccino, my chances of getting high just fell through the floor because apparently when there's a cold drink in your hand, I'm cold and distant and nasty and, What about bad smells in the room? What about giving people discussions of coronavirus and then asking them their social cognitive views on immigration? We are subject to a lot of mopping up. It's not free will. Yes, of course, you can impose a lot of decision-making and problem-solving, but you're not going to be terribly confident if you know what you're doing. You're not going to be confident that you did it rationally because a lot of your decision-making was done for you by a 70 million-year-old piece of equipment called the insula or the anterior cingulate or the limbic cortex, the septum, the hippocampus talking to each other. And you know what? They're all at war with your pretty new shining frontal lobes which don't really have strength to them. They're just too new at this game. Whereas the limbic cortex, these guys are old and they know what they do. There is this war for control of your outcomes where you will be just mopping up. And when you get that, when you look at how brains evolved and when you look at how human brains evolved and when you compare what we do differently to animals and what we are the same as in animals, uh, you know, like, why do we like females more at a certain time of day or month? If they're ovulating, their voices are higher pitched, which is nice. Their faces are more symmetrical because they're retaining water. It may not blow up their baboon bums to look all red and fluffy, but they're retaining water to look more symmetrical. And they become more attractive and more attractive to us and us to them and more sensitive to skin stroking. Um, We're not terribly rational at that level. And then when you think about the higher functions, drawing on all of those without us noticing it, If you've got free will, don't trust yourself because it's not that free. There is no free lunch in the brain. There are interesting, incredible things. We're very arrogant in thinking that we're not animals. We're very arrogant in thinking we're homo sapiens. We are homo God knows what, homo secretus. We've got a lot of secrets going on and we don't know what's going on. So this is what's intrigued me about how psychological uh, approaches and how the strategies would play directly into what responses in the brain. And that then took me the next sort of 20 years from 87 to 2007 to start to feel comfortable about which psychological interventions targeted the brain as a neurological entity. And then getting fascinated with the hundreds of books I've reviewed since then and published reviews on them about what the brain means to therapy and the peril that comes in when you, as a psychologist, think you're making a web of inspiring speech, when all it counts is how much did the person like you.
0: So, in some in some sense, there's the complexity of rationality is us putting a narrative to the choices that we've made. Oh, absolutely. Uh, in actual fact, what you're arguing is there are sort of intrinsic um, cues. Under the hood. Feelings, Under the hood, secretive stuff going on.
1: <laughs> things yes. that
0: kind of, you know, place impressions on us to do things or to, to behave in certain ways, and then we put a narrative to that to say the reason why I did X was because of Y. But when you put that under the microscope, like in the judge's experiment um, or, or study, uh, that might be more attributable to whether
1: someone's well-fed or, or not, or blood sugars or whatever it might it might be. So the hormones, what their cortisol levels are looking like, follicular stimulating hormone, what is happening with the adrenaline pumping off their adrenal glands is it dragging testosterone with it, the effects of testosterone, you know, so misunderstood and such rubbish in a lot of the early literature about giving testosterone to fetuses made the females more aggressive, all this rubbish. There's a lot of bad science and neuroscience has criticized itself. There's a lot of bad science. So it's difficult, but yes, essentially we invent these narratives to explain behavior that happened in the last whatever. And we have wonderful lyrical, beautiful, eloquent philosophical explanations for why groups of people do stuff. Um, But very often, how long a mother suckles her baby for, how loud she talks to it, depends on what her ancestors did for a living 400 years before. And what your risks of diabetes are, depending on when your grandmother's fetus was being nurtured in the Dutch hunger winter, all the epigenetic stuff, or whether you're a white policeman who is much more prone to pull a trigger on a guy with a mobile phone instead of a gun because the mobile phone's in the hands of a black guy, um, then you realize the explanations, the post-hoc narratives are not a reasonably accurate, but useful, but not a reasonably ac- accurate sign that we have a sentient human being totally in control of their lives or their motivations or their thoughts, the evidence is completely the other way. Absolutely not. Free will? Absolutely not. Um, you would think that 74 million people voting for Donald doing out of free will, most of them have got more cleaning products in their homes than the liberals because they're much more sensitive to disgust and the insula is more active in conservative people as it was with... Martin Luther, who washed his hands and they got dirtier because the insula was producing disgust and he didn't get that. And then of course we hijack that to decide, you know, Puerto Ricans or Mexicans or somebody's disgusting and we should not let them across the border because they're rapists and murders. and people like Donald Trump or Adolf Hitler or others, not very bright, but very intuitive, know how to play people's emotions. And then you see these patterns that we get in society of people doing the easy thing that's the wrong thing to do instead of doing the hard thing that's the right thing to do. And we don't know what stories we make up. We don't know if we're telling ourselves the truth and the chances are we're not.
0: How does this play into how a psychologist might do their work and, and working with uh, their clients' narratives or working with their own narratives, working with the narrative of, you know, this therapy is, is a useful therapy, or even you know, if I take this one step further, I know there's a lot in this, in this one question, how do we do even public policy um, when, we're, when we're trying to use the rational brain?
1: Well, Australians have a wonderful um, phrase called "herding cats." You know, you're trying to herd cats like you would herd sheep, and they're all over the place and sticking to you and scratching. And you know, that's politics. So um, the answer is obviously um, for politicians and social stuff, and for psychologists to understand how emotions work, and not just the emotions of fear and fight and flight and freeze. And you know, we've got colleagues writing very erudite books mentioning fear, fight, flight, freeze all this kind of stuff, rest and digest, but really understanding the individual differences. And psychology really is about creating a warm relationship with someone where basically they can sort out their own stuff, not being, you know, thinking I know, and I have this philosophy and understanding of the human brain or mind. It's very humbling to go, Every human being is so unique, depending on the neighborhood that their anterior pituitary is pumping hormones out of, because the bloody thing doesn't have set areas, the whole thing does everything, and so if you're pumping it out here or here you're getting a different human being at the time, is really just creating a warm relationship. and then looking as we've got better and better with science, where do we go? Let's look at newer therapies, you know third order. CBT, second order CBT, acceptance and commitment therapy. It hooks into motivational interviewing in what motivates a human being. Number one, autonomy, guiding my own life. Well, guiding your own life around what? Well, the who and what is important to me. Oh, your values. So now we have in acceptance and commitment, the need to guide our own lives, using our values as some kind of lodestar. And then working through with clients, because when you ask people what their values are, they go, uh, family, uh, money, uh, friends. They don't get into depth. When you're born into a religion, you may be issued with 613 values in Judaism. You know, the Quran as a wonderful guideline to life and everyday living and so on. These are value systems. Just hand it over to you, follow this, and you're all okay. So now we think, okay, guiding your own life is a good principle, autonomy. Around what? Around your values, around the things that are important to you. Well, that turns out to be very useful because we're goal setting and the goals are based on values. And then growth, mastery, getting better and better at something that is important to me so I can guide my own life. So human growth um, by getting the values right and making decisions based on that. Being mindful of what? Life sucks. Life is full of disasters. We are hardwired for negativity neurologically. The amygdala isn't sitting there looking for the bright, sunny sky at the end of the rainbow. It's looking for the hawk that's going to come and peck your eyes out. It's looking at the collapse of the ecosystem. It's preparing you for the next ice age. Positivity is synthetic, as Dan Gilbert has shown. So helping people set micro goals because the human cortex doesn't think ahead more than three months. If anybody says to me, um, you know, what's your five year plan? I'm going to show them what four letter words in several languages sound like. What a stupid idea when the average good human brain and brain in its 30s can think forward about 12 weeks. What about your three month goals? What about setting goals according to your values? All of this becomes very useful, but what about the sense of relatedness? The human executive functions, the frontal lobes evolved as social instruments, they evolved for gossip, for dealing with other people. So autonomy, guiding your own life around your values, the things that are important to you, and in the process, getting better and better at that. But we know the value of socializing, of having a sense of relatedness, where the people around you share that, so you find your own people. And now everybody has a sense of purpose. Everybody gather hands and sing, we shall overcome. You have a happy person. So I think we're there now 300 studies on relational frame signs that we were not Skinnerian pigeons and we were not um, Pavlov's dogs. And now we go into relational frames of how human beings learn both wonderful things and also terror at the things that could go wrong. We all know what a vroom vroom car is, as Tim Gordon points out. We all know what daddy's car and my little car, are the same thing, you know. I know that this is not a motorbike and I know a motorbike's not half a car. I also know what a car crash looks like if I was never in one. I would still be scared of one. All of this is neurological. All of this makes sense. If you understand the interior cingulate, the insular the mesial cortex of the, you know, the temporal lobes, how we integrate at the tertiary level, what the CA1 and subiculum do in post-traumatic stress and how the hippocampus shrinks and the amygdala grows under trauma and it doesn't get better in PTSD. Um, Yes, when you take the narratives that psychology has developed around science and around the neurology of how we learn and the neurology of the weak Uh, slow executive functions versus you start to become I think a better therapist because it screams biology and it doesn't come up with the schizophrenogenic mother or that gay is something to do with your mother putting you in pink or some other rubbish so I think we can mop up those narratives in psychology using process-based CBT what does behavioral activation do uh, and then reversing it into behavior therapies and older CBTs and not making Martin Seligman's mess up with the American army trying to make them all positive. The last time I saw a positive drill sergeant, he was dead. <laughs> One should not get positive in the battlefield, you know. So I know that's kind of a long-winded bringing together of everything, but I think we are getting better as psychologists because we're getting better tools because somebody understands how we learn and how we get afraid and how irrational we are, and they start to put together decent therapies.
0: Is that why there's maybe a little bit of a leaning, at least here in Australia, toward your sort of uh, process-based, whether it's like act or whether it's emotion-focused therapy, you know, trying to work with, you know, these, even schema to, in in many ways, talking about modes that were, you know, developed, you know, as young people. Um, Do you think that's maybe why there's a bit of a leaning in in that, that we naturally are finding them a bit more effective, uh, certainly not suggesting that, you know, CBT isn't, isn't still extremely valuable, but um, I suppose there's lots of different ways that, that psychologists themselves actually practice each one of those, though, though, those approaches.
1: Sure, and I think obviously that takes, you know, elements, mindfulness and other things out of CBT, but doesn't sit there fusing to thoughts and, you know, challenging them and doing stuff. Um, Because most of the kids I work with, for instance, are severely autistic. Uh, Some of them have really difficult cases, you know, with the police, fear to tread and so on. Um, So, yes, I I think we do go in the right direction. But my American colleagues are quite cynical and they say that psychology advances one funeral at a time, uh, waiting for academics and professors to die off you know, they've been studying the same thing their whole lives and got experted and wrote books on it and everything else. And and I see that sometimes when you go into a board of of people, you know, building up a new charity or something else, and we have people who are experts in their field, and one has to wait for them to die for the next expert to be able to shove their way into academia. Um, so I think what the the you know. the the wonderful guys like Hayes and Hoffman and all of these people with process-based and act and advancing all that time with hundreds of studies, starting off with a really good theory, you know, relational frames and the contextual stuff, which, you know, I've been looking at context for years rather than intrapsychic phenomenon, looking at how neurology engages with context because genes don't define behavior. The context tells the genes, what they need to do and don't do and under those circumstances. Um, so yes, I have not a problem with CBT or psychodynamic therapies or anything you want to do, but to keep it kosher, halal and all very nice, you better link it to the neurology of what's going on. Otherwise I think we're cheating people. Um, and one sees that in, in, in a patient I know who was in therapy for multiple years who went to a neuropsychiatrist who said, I'm going to test you for stuff and discovered he had two problems. Number one, thyroid, which was 30% of his depression. And number two, he was infected with toxoplasmosis gondii, which was making him reckless uh, because his mom had kept kept kittens and uh, he had picked it up as a fetus. He had picked up, you know, uh, toxoplasmosis. So um, yeah, I think, Uh, at our peril, we need to really defend psychology as a science and neuropsychology in particular, and any other forms, sports psychology, peak performance psychology, but make sure we are biologists and we're not thinking of the ghost in the machine uh, and only interacting with that. I think it's a dreadful error and patients don't like it.
0: Hmm. In the spirit of... Hoping that some of this sticks, and obviously we can we can integrate the, these things that you've said. I I often find that interesting research um, does become uh, does create an emotive response in many of us because it's exciting and it's it's cutting edge. And the like. What are some of the standout uh, studies, the researchers that you have looked at, read about? Um, that you and, 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 and uh, your colleagues have have um, I suppose leaned on in terms of understanding the biology, kind of like the the judge uh, the, the, the the judge's study, uh, which I've read about as well, uh, which is mind blowing. Um, but what are some of the key keystone studies that you think uh, uh, demonstrate
1: the importance of appreciating one's biology and therapy. Sure, look, I know there, there are tons of books of being a brain-wise ther- therapist and whatever else. And, and John Ratey, I think, for me, started to produce, um, you know, he wrote his book Spark with uh, Eric Hagerman, uh, co-wrote it with him. But I think when, when a psychiatrist like John Ratey involved with personality disorders and other stuff, Um, just began to integrate. And I think where I get excited is in the integrationists. When they start saying, let's not get caught up in a bucket. Let's not get caught up in, we understand everything from a behavioral point of view. We understand everything from a neurobiological, neuroendocrinological, biological evolutionary. Um, I like all the integrationists. So John Ratey, for me was the first psychiatrist who really came out of the woodwork and said, wow, When we do physical things with a patient or with a student or if we want to enhance human performance or start to treat stuff, we now look and go, well, this is really good if we integrate movement, nutrition. So years ago, I joined a group uh, which was quite small but looking impressive called Athletes Performance, which is now known as Team Exos, you know, X's and O's. And um, they had four pillars which were revolutionizing the way athletes were being trained by their trainers, uh, which was movement, nutrition, mindset, and recovery. And they asked me to join them all the way across from Arizona to <laughs> Sydney, Australia, as the Director of Applied Neuroscience and Performance Innovation. And the first things we began to look at was they did the movement stuff really well, complex movement. They did the nutrition really well, you know, with great nutritionists, getting people to eat, you know, low human interference food and and producing their own restaurant there, which produced the most fantastic food Um, and recovery, which was you could, you know, looking at the the science of how the muscles under stress produce brain-derived neurotrophic factor and endothelial growth factors and human growth factors and how this recovery did stuff. And then, of course, we began to see that those growth factors were going to be used by the brain and the mindset piece wasn't that good. Over the next 10 years, I spent my time convincing them to the point that we're now a mindset movement, nutrition and recovery company. Mindset has become the single most important part of athlete-centered coaching. And I've also introduced for them values-based coaching. How does the coach align the values of the player with the values of the organization, the values of the team? Not, I'm the coach, I'm a genius, I know there's no science of coaching really, although Nick Winkleman and and, uh, a few of my other colleagues from there who have branched out have done incredible well, um, Brett as well what do we do now? The integration then began, what about human beings? And there comes John Ratey, showing that half an hour of movement introduced to an American school system would raise the IQ by 15, 20%, would raise the math scores and the SAT scores and all of this. So what was it about movement? What was it about nutrition? And so then integrated neuroscience, really, and integrated dietetics and as we know, nutritionists have struggled with very little data for years because you can't do decent controlled studies easily. Um, Tim Noakes coming into the fray and upsetting everybody, but, you know, central governor theories and, and nutrition stuff and working his way into ketone diets and all of these things. So I think, for me, the, the integration, the research into integrating movement and nutrition and other stuff into psychology becomes really important. The siloed effect, what Sapolsky calls the danger of being in buckets and not integrating the buckets into human behavioral science, leaves us with both hands tied behind our backs and probably on a peg leg and a really bad artificial limb if we're going to practice with patients who are deconditioned, who don't sleep where we look at anhedonism without looking at dopamine reward pathways, where we look at guilt and melancholy without looking at serotonergic pathways, where we look at psychomotor retardation without looking at norepinephrine, where we look at sleep problems and sleep architecture without looking at delta-inducing sleep peptides, and where we only look at learned helplessness. Thank you, Dr. Beck. We look at learned helplessness and go, okay, we'll just deal with the efficacy which in itself is a motivational self-determination science. That's where there's good research in self-determination in orthopedics, in motivational interviewing in the boardroom, in the military. I wrote the first book on motivational interviewing in elite elite sportsmen, and Rolnik has popped out with a new one recently which he said was the first, and I sent him a nasty email saying, Steve, I was first. It was me. It was not you. I was number one. He said, sorry, didn't know about it. <laughs> Nobody read the bloody thing, but actually became a textbook for you know personal trainers worldwide, motivating clients to healthy behavior, ask, don't tell, be athlete-centered. So many lessons from Carl Rogers, so many lessons. If you ask people what was the most influential book they ever wrote, it wasn't Rolnik and Miller. It was Viktor Frankl, the will to meaning around values and around the Holocaust. And I spent years working with Holocaust survivors and their memories. And, you know, so who drives me up the wall with excitement? Robert Sapolsky, Elizabeth Loftus, um, certainly Carl Rogers in just being client-centered. Certainly, Milan Rolnick's research and certainly, obviously, Hayes and all of the followers of Hayes in relational frames was one of the most important things I ever managed to almost understand. I'm still trying. (laughs) I'm trying to teach it now, which might help my understanding, given we learn by showing and doing rather than, and I still can't get my head around it exactly, because I think relational frames is amazing. And even as a neuropsychologist, I find relational frames uh, quite amazing. So the integration of the liber- the Liberated Mind book by Stephen Hayes, um, The Spark by John Ratey, um, a whole range of works by Gassenegger. Gassenegger's Split Brain Studies, his evolution of the right hemisphere, left hemisphere, l- already defining why, you know, kids with ADHD are neuroatypical, their brains don't develop fully at the same level until they're 25, they lag 30% behind. So Russ Barkley, who, you know, I collaborated with a few years ago in ADHD and sent him emails and we landed up writing the same article completely separately and then published in the same month. And I wrote him and said, oh, my God, you published on the evolution of executive functions and frontal lobes exactly as I did, you know. um, Difficulty in getting conceptual stuff published was our discussion at the time. Um, so those are the kind of things that I get excited by in publications and in terms of, of assimilated knowledge being put forward not in buckets but integrated yeah yeah something that's uh, certainly
0: struck struck me certainly from the likes of whether it's Steve Hayes or you know your Kelly Wilson's that that, uh, that great simplicity around mm the, I suppose, the pillars, if you like, of, of, of mental...
1: elegance those
0: pillars. Yeah, just things like, you know, sleep, you know, eating, you know, real food, you know, uh, having... Really strong bonds, connections uh, with others, socializing
1: emotions. just so incredibly powerful. Yeah, yeah.
0: purpose, meaning, uh, fulfillment you know, it's just a little bit of mindfulness practice or even you know, rest,
1: relaxation, uh, you know, removing gut biome. What about gut biome and socializing? Sitting around drinking kombucha and kefir and fumayok. Yeah, yeah. Now you've got to help me with something. Nesh, you've got to help me with a socialization piece because I get bored with people in dinners. <laughs> you know, I sit with, with uh, people I get bored because I don't want to talk about people's kids or, you know, their motor car service or, you know, what they do for a living. Um, I like being around young people talking about their research and their science and, you know, I don't want to hear about somebody's trip to Vietnam. You know, wonderful, make me jealous. I couldn't care. Um, you know, So that socializing piece, obviously, social withdrawal is so ubiquitous to depression, to schizotypal, schizophrenic, schizoid, schizoaffective, to autism. This socializing piece, two things for psychology, I want your help. Number one, so few studies on evil. And second of all, so little on how people can truly get socially integrated when nobody likes them probably my problem but stuff.
0: <laughs> How did you do that with, 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 with clients because my understanding is it's, is, is it's fairly difficult uh, and I've, I've heard people like Jordan Peterson talk about socialization if it's not you know, developed to a certain level by age four. it's very, very difficult for, for you know children to, to develop into young persons into you know, young adults and adults to pick up some of those social cues. Um, now, I don't well, know the research that he yourself? is referring for about, yourself. but I know that a lot of things happen, you know, as, as you say, biologically, that um, might put certain limits and it, it,
1: it, it's hard to kind of bro- learn socializing, you know. We, sure. And that's we, why it takes 25 years for the frontal lobes to develop. We're not born with a nice genetic socializing thing. We've got to learn all those subtle if-thens in our first 25 years before the bloody frontal lobe shut down. They were developed as the arm or the agent of civilization, of socializing. The You know, Luria called them the, the cortical knots that get tied across the zones of proximal development. I don't buy the Jordan Peterson four years. It's 25 years, but what kind of socializing do you get by the time your brain's, you know, cut, shut down is is really important because thou shalt not kill, but yes, you can kill if you wear a uniform and shoot the right people at the right time. And you shouldn't lie, but if grandma gives you a really crappy present, of course you can lie to her and tell her how wonderful it is while passing it along to be thrown out. Um, those subtleties, which is socialization, which you know Jordan Peterson talks about, those subtleties are incredibly difficult. They are so culturally bound. They are so values bound. There are so many rules. I mean, God forbid you go to a French dinner party and take your own wine or take dessert or, you know, go and look at the table that's just been set before you're invited in. You never go back. I had a poor friend who moved to Paris and was a social disaster because, my God, there were rules. She was given a beautiful cocktail, but it seemed to be in four layers. So she mixed it up with a spoon and nearly got shot. You know, the French were ready to guillotine her for destroying the various levels of my wonderful thing. You know, Uh, she brought her own wine. I mean, eh, destroyed all of the wine choices for the night. Just those subtle things could ruin you. But we know it's so important. I haven't seen good science on how one really is capable of doing that. What makes people likable and what makes them unlikable? Mm. Uh, You know, what is the formula there? Share people's values, sense of relatedness. You know, that's kind of where we're going. We like people who are like us. You know, oxytocin makes us all wonderful, makes fruit flies, good listeners, whatever, as Sapolsky says. um, What does it do for us? It makes us incredibly sticky to attach to people who are like us. It makes us xenophobic and racist to people who are not. So there's a backside, downside to that. So for me, the two aspects of how do people get evil, how do they get racist? How do we train that, you know, context psychology and all that in Kumbaya? Nice. How do we do this? Maybe what
0: we're trying to do is is change biology in, in you know, psychology holding a position. I mean, I know when a, when a client comes in who is having social difficulties, my yearning, my desire of looking at another human being is to reduce some of their suffering. Maybe the position is, is to accept their suffering and that part of their biology, if I look at the big bell curve, is they're less likable. And maybe that's not necessarily you know for 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 anyone to to judge and, and kind of just accept it on a big biological natural level where you know maybe back in you know uh, sapolsky's uh, research of of looking at what it might look like you know thousands of years ago they might be the ones that were picked off by the by the lion um because they wouldn't be in the group um you now we don't oh, have
1: yeah. the Yeah, I wrote about that in an article I published on, you know, the evolution of the frontal lobes and why our toolkits are often empty and the difficulty with assessing these abstract, you know, symbolic kind of thinking ideas. But absolutely, you know, if you didn't have four-wheel drive and and keep up with the hunters and some leopard or lion picked you up, I mean, in the the African savannah, your lifespan unprotected and not knowing what you're doing in the bush is 24 hours. You're going to get eaten or, you know, bitten by something. Um, In the Australian bush, I don't know, dingoes, yeah, I'm sure they're dangerous, but (laughs) come here, doggy. you know, try and talk to a full-grown lion. Um, So what do we do? I think, you know, let's look at things like increasingly schools, uh, well, they've always been, are they really good with, with kids who are not neurotypical? Every ADHD, ODD kid I find who's in trouble hates himself or hates herself, mostly the males, obviously, but hates himself, regards himself as absolutely terrible because he's at a private school and can't do four-unit math, you know, or he's unable to contain himself past lunchtime, or he gets to school, he's already harassed and already miserable, and then teachers stand over him. Um, You know, we're not good with neuroatypical people. We are still rejecting oxytocin versus rejection, Um, How do we do that? You know, contact theory hasn't worked. You know, Israelis and Palestinians still attack each other. And, you know, Northern Ireland, it's flaring up all over again. Um, Just contacting with people. Years ago, what was in 1972, my biology lecturer at university said the downfall of humankind will be the miscegenation of different language groups learning to hate each other. In other words, spilling over into each other's territory, the rise of nationalism, the rejection of diversity and inclusion. Are we getting better? I think in many ways we're getting better at that, where people who are atypical will still be liked and still be invited and join in. Well, maybe it's also about the language that we use, you know, the fact that we go out and categorize people
0: based on you know thresholds of what we say is functional or dysfunctional whether it's you know impedes or um, affects their social you know academic or work life maybe we're making this up rather than as you said before describing and i think when we be it's kind of like when when you get you know ten psychologists or psychiatrists or gps or whoever it might be you know you know the the learned people um, and you ask them or to interview a client, they can all go out and describe that client. They'll basically say the exact same uh, description of the person and what, because the person, they're just basically repeating what the person said. But at the moment we go to categorize, I think we get vast differences in, in diagnostics. You know, some person says oh, it's anxiety, and another person says it's adjustment disorder, and another person says it's, you know, it's depression, in the context of whatever it might be. We someone says personality disorder. We we come up with different narratives, um, but the consistency is everyone still says this is the context. You know, it doesn't matter where you come from, it could be. You know, a psychologist, or, you know, a psychiatrist, GP, could be the person's friend. They'll probably all describe the same context in which this person lives. So maybe a little bit, little bit of this is about language and describing, uh, describing differences um, and similarities and, and normalness, uh, the bell
1: curve, rather than saying one's right, one's wrong, good, bad. Well, look at the, the fact even professionals, I get and kids are referred for all kinds of therapies, and when you look at their test results, they're not below the second percentile. They're not above the 98th percentile. They're in the stock stand normal group. You know, as my wife's grandfather said, um, if everybody's children are geniuses, where do all the idiots come from? <laughs> 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 you know? um, you know, it, we are such a diverse population and there's no psychological categories with the DSM-4 and 5 and forty are, and all of those things. I mean, there was more variance within a category than there was, you know, between categories. And, you know, the Black Dog Institute and Gordon and everybody has, has said, listen, the reason why we can't get decent drugs is because the only people we include in our trials are the people who pass the DSM-5 criteria for depression. The other ones, you know, so we only get 30% responses to an antidepressant. And by the time you've done three or four changes, you've got a 60, 70. Why does psychotherapy have an 84% You know, benefit? It's because you can't take 1,000 people in the room and divide by 1,000 and get the one that you're treating. Everybody got to be depressed differently. Didn't matter, whatever their their intrauterine environment was different, and even twins are bathing each other. And you know, what does a twin girl look like with her brother? She's being bathed in his testosterone. You know, is she going to be more aggressive? You know, all this rubbish. Everybody's such an individual, so we will always come back to the nosological categories are not much use, which I like. Act saying we're not really so keen on diagnosis. We are much more keen to just describe the pathway by which people come to be dysfunctional in the context they're in. What was the process? What is the process in relational frame terms and out? What is fusion? What does defusion look like for this person? What are their particular values? And you know, all la 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 la, all terribly sure. useful. Yeah, because I've got to ask, you know, I've got to ask a hard question, which is
0: maybe on an evolutionary basis, and I don't even know how this would work, but maybe on an evolutionary basis, there is great value in antisocial behaviour, in narcissism, you know, it might not be nice for you and I to meet that at times, but maybe there's great value. I mean, obviously, those traits have, you know, come to 2021, they've they've lasted, and they're going to last beyond, Um, there has to be some value in that variability, you know, that we keep putting these traits out into the world and we see what happens, you know, we see how well do they go out and procreate and, and you know, that that is a function of evolution, right?
1: Well, I mean, you know, evolution has more than just kin selection and individual selecting and group selecting, you know, it's got all of these things. So how would the narcissist do in the group? How does, you know, I put people somewhere between failed narcissism and high functioning psychopathy. You know, I think everybody sits along there. And obviously, if you're the narcissist, you are going to breed, you know, you are going to breed the big headed male, you know, from 200,000 years ago. Fathered 95% of the kids in the herd. The woman there would just grab his jeans because there was a good chance that this rugabugger was going to pass on his jeans, and we still reward. So, why the narcissist? We reward aggression all the time, the right kind of aggression, being a sportsman, being a politician, being rich. These are things we reward, but they're all types of aggression, really. They're aggressively self, you know aggrandizing and, and moving on and, and, you know, being as narcissistic as hell. I don't think you get to be, you know, a great entrepreneur unless you've got that edge to you. Maybe ADD helps, maybe ADHD helps, maybe being OCD will help your ADD. um, But the narcissism is rewarded. Um, You know, thinking highly of yourself again, maybe not in a group of people who have five villages sharing their watering around their rice when you tell them to wear a mask they wear a mask because they're used to collaborating village to village when you get the lovely kid who was brought up by mountain people teaching him to be autonomous and grow wheat he's going to be self-aggrandizing and say i will not give up my mask freedom to save the guy next door I will kill the enemy, then I will kill my cousins, then I will kill my half-brothers, then I'll kill my brother, you know, as opposed to I will give my life for my twin. I will give my life for two brothers. I will give my life for four half-brothers. I will give my life for eight cousins. Um, Yes, I think we reward aggression. We reward a lot of the traits of narcissism these men and women pass on their genes, in the same way that the schizotypal personalities pass on enough genes so that schizophrenia carries on, even if people with schizophrenia don't breed that much. I think we reward aggression in people. We're going to keep getting narcissists and worse, failed narcissists and maybe the high-functioning psychopath.
0: I mean, in some way, maybe, uh, I mean, if I I think about it, some of the great... Inventions of the world uh, have been because people have backed themselves in in such a strong way that they have believed uh, within their own capacities and maybe they haven't actually been the greatest themselves, but they were able to market themselves in that way they were able to push their agenda in that way they were able to get a movement people to believe them it's kind of like academia if you think about academia oh, yeah. a research going out there but some of it's just not publicized very well uh, yet it might be far superior far superior than you know what a what a someone else might be able to do to, to you know present it across the stage
1: oh well contextually a whole bunch of dutch scientists produced literature on the size of the of the um, of the in the you know interior singular wherever it was that, that the change in size could be much more common in gay guys than not and they were pilloried crucified and whatever else you're making gay into a disease and somebody'll try and cure it and you know people took to the streets to kill these guys. And then a few years later the same study that was replicated by somebody else who just happened to be gay and everybody came out and said, look, amazing proof that it is biological. It is not a choice. Same research, different context, different people. So I agree with you. Some people get it right in being promoted in their research, being promoted in their literature. Um, Wonderful. So it does the narcissism. It only works well when it is rewarded by the society you're in. It is really not good to push an agenda in Australia, for instance, where humbleness is appreciated, unless you're royalty or you are sports people who are our royalty anyway, you can get away with being a narcissistic prick, as long as you have a crown on your head, a title behind your name, which we worship, or otherwise you're a sportsman, which we worship. But God help you, you walk into you know a group of people and you're not Aussie, Aussie, Aussie. If you don't play Australian rules, I see immigrants, especially Americans, especially South Africans getting crucified for being narcissistic. But what does narcissism help? Uh, In a narcissistic environment, you don't get bullied because you don't realize it's bullying and you don't care about being chewed out by the boss. The boss calls you in and he says, you're a bloody idiot. You're a fool. What did you do? You screwed up. You're going to cost us a fortune. I should beat you and run you out of town, you moron, you asshole. You walk out the door and you go, what happened? Oh, the boss just chewed me out. Other cultures, oh, my God. You know, I am a weak person. You can't say that to me. Oh, my God. Stress leave, EAP, quick. Serenity now. Kumbaya, everybody help groom me quickly. I've been unjustly crucified. So I think the tolerance for all of these things, yes, you can be self-promoting this, that and the other, you get it wrong, you get crucified, you get it right, and you become Prime Minister of Australia.
0: I think something that really impressed me, uh, was sorry, something that had a huge impression on me was uh, listening to Steve Hayes do a keynote uh, presentation and, and talking about a particular study around uh, hens and and yes. looking at um, you know what was the I suppose the, the yield of of, of hens in, in cages in a in a battery yeah. farm. Um, you're nodding and smiling. You obviously know uh, for our, for our listeners. And please jump in, Roy, and and, and um, tease out where I get this wrong. But the researchers. Uh, uh, identified cages that had the highest yield um, and put them, I suppose, effectively to one side. And then they looked at the yield of specific individual hens and they put them all into cages um, to to have, for example, 10 high-yield individuals in one cage versus a group of 10 who are considered as a group of high-yield. And I think they... They uh, to, to try and control for for uh in extraneous variables and the like I think they um, uh, got them to uh, have three generations of, of of chicks before they 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 did the research and there was a slight improvement of the group um, a, a cage with a little bit more yield uh, versus the the individuals that were all grouped together after they um, were in the cage for a a short period of time, uh, the yield went down dramatically. And that was because this kind of high achiever, um, probably high narcissism, um, they picked each other to death. And, you know, under stress, you don't go out and produce as many eggs. They rip each other's feathers out and, you know, they're hypervigilant and so on and so forth. And, in some sense, it's kind of like, you know, what the what the top of a lot of organizations look like, you know, maybe in politics yeah. or something like that. or Power, uh, power
1: struggles. Just think the, the Milan School therapist wrote years ago about uh, the secret games of organizations, talking about the power struggles that went on and you got hired by the CEO, but the MD didn't like it and the MD would sabotage you because they didn't like the fact the CEO brought in the experts, all this kind of thing. But certainly, yes, with the chicken studies and with rat studies and whatever else, it's not just kinship selection, it's uh, all kinds of selection going on. There's group selection, other things. When you've got all these narcissists, there's only a limit to this individual competition and individual selection. Group selection in these animals is absolutely critical, isn't it? Because group selection means I have to sacrifice for the group, which means I can't just keep on producing eggs Who's the best egg producer? Well, an egg uh, chicken is an egg's way of producing another egg. We we want to focus on the eggs. And what do we do is we put chickens that are related to each other, that recognize each other as kin, that will sacrifice their own breeding for the next one. Um, Think about the idea as well, if you are gay, are you sacrificing your reproductive um, rates or your reproductive capacity For your siblings, will they have more kids and be more fertile? It turns out, yeah, not a strong effect size, but yeah, you've got people who can look after people. Why did the chicken cross the road? Not to get to the narcissistic rooster on the other side, but to do some kinship selection, you know, to do some pseudo kinship. The same with the army. Why did the Americans stop integrating um, their forces? Is because if the guys all came from the same village, they would shoot the officer to get out of Vietnam. Um, But when you got guys who were completely diverse, they did not trust each other. Nobody was shooting the officer because nobody had everybody else's back. This guy was leaving tomorrow. This guy arrived today. You didn't have your band of brothers because you were in the wrong war, the wrong values. And that's what happens with the chickens, really, isn't it? The pseudo-kinship didn't happen if they're all competing because... Alpha males will go for alpha males and alpha females will go for alpha females. Um, you took a lot of testosterone and you made these animals aware that there was a loss of social status. So they attacked each other. Um, absolutely. All of the narcissists. Just think there was one study in 1932, the shamans in this uh, In this Native American tribe, there was one shaman. He was very good. and He got the rain to come, and he got people out of all kinds of difficulties. He was a great medicine man. And one of the researchers there was talking to them, an ethologist, and he said, your medicine man is really amazing. And he said, and thank God we've only got one of them. (laughs) Because when you've got two medicine men, you've got a war. One has to get out of the village. You don't want to put all your good egg layers there because they compete. And what happens is they suppress, you know, the Wellesley effect. They suppress each other's hormones in competition and they stop producing eggs and they lose all their feathers from stress. You know, the Wellesley phenomenon of we all synchronize our periods until a dominant male comes along. And who do we synchronize our periods to? To the socially dominant female in the group. This stuff still makes a difference, doesn't it? So can we have more than one CEO in a company? No, thanks. One psychopath is enough. Um, you know, can we have more than one professor head of a department? I won't go there. <laughs> but yeah, well, I mean, do we but, need that narcissism think, to get yeah. Sorry, Roy, you're, you're, you're about do, to say. Do we need that narcissism to get to those levels of leadership? Is it a requirement? because are we rewarding the aggression that comes with that personality? The answer would be, yes, we are. And testosterone makes people more sensitive to that kind of thing, and therefore probably better at being more aggressive in response to that sensitivity and status. Testosterone enhances your sense of your status. I have to just think that evolution has brought us here for, for
0: a good reason. I might not be able to give you a... Uh, an explanation or a narrative but it it seems to me that if, it, if it's here it makes sense i mean we could probably put a whole lot of narratives t- t- together as to why um but t- to me those studies just seem really really like they make sense that there's a collective there's leadership um, in those in those group ones that just organically have got together which means there's someone who puts out high output. There's someone who's cranky and you know kicks the door down and screams at everyone. There's someone who goes out and kind of calms everyone down and softens everything. Someone who goes out and does the social things and gets coffees for everybody. Um, they're all fitting a piece. You know, it's like our society. You know, we 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 all are very diverse. That's group selection, and that's the group selection, isn't it? And so, as a society um, and as a species. You know, we we do quite well. It um, doesn't mean that there isn't infighting and so on. But some of the craziness that kind of baffles me is when we're trying to stop natural behaviour. Um, you know, we we rather than talking about kind of saying, look, you know. Uh, we, we need to moderate, you know, bullying or work with kids who are being really aggressive with other kids or, you know, we need to kind of try and and, and shield others. But where, where we have this kind of like no bullying policy, I, I get that and I understand that. But I think there's a description, there's a way that we can educate the whole school and the parents and the kids in a different way rather than these quick grabs that um, might not tell the whole story, you know, because we need to kind of support those that uh, both feel bullied and those that are bullying as well, because I, I imagine they must be
1: hurting themselves quite a bit also. Exactly. How do you understand aggression if you don't understand the anxiety that underlies the aggression? Because why and, and when they do studies of bullies families versus the victims families, it's the same kind of upbringing. It's the same anxiety expressed differently. The bully will do what is socialized to do, not because it's more aggressive as a bully, but because it has got more anxiety and it is displacing the anxiety through aggression. If you take five rhesus monkeys, males, put them all in a room, there's a battle goes on and then you can see that's the number one monkey, number two, three, four, and five in rank. No problem. You take number three monkey, you fill it full of testosterone to the gills. It's on androids. It can bench press 100 kilos, And it goes into that room. And who does it beat up on? Numbers four and five. You just enhance the aggression to the lower ranking males because testosterone enhances your sense of social whatever. When the bully goes to school, they get exactly that feeling. And now there's some testosterone coming in. And don't forget females, when they get anxious, the adrenal glands in pushing out all the uh, adrenal stuff and the cortisol stuff pushes out testosterone with it to prepare them for the fight and flight for the fight and flight to be aggressive um guess what you need testosterone and you need aggression and that's how you displace your anxiety exactly what you said why we're we not treating the anxiety in the bullies so they don't have to beat up on four and five but they're rather happy with being number three and god forbid not being one and two The other issues in warrior culture, certainly. If you're a Maasai warrior, someone in Africa, at the age of 13, you get given a spear and told, go out and come back with a dead lion or don't come back. Rewarding aggression. And if you're going to be a warrior leader, you cannot sit there sobbing every time somebody gets killed. You need to be able to send hundreds of thousands of people on D-Day and not worry that you're going to lose 5,000 Americans on day one not send people to Vietnam and lose 55,000 Americans in 10 years. You've got to not care. You've got to be a bit of a psychopath whose anterior cingulate doesn't turn on and, and tell the amygdala to light up and sob when your whole platoon just got wiped out. Look at the British officers in World War I and their status versus, let's say, someone like General Menashe and the way he viewed the world as a Jewish officer. As a Jewish trained Jewish brought up 613 good deeds a day and so on, um, there is a different approach. If you think of the fact that 16% of everyone in the world today is descended directly from Genghis Khan, we know what a psychopath can do in terms of breeding. That was a man who piled up the corpses all over Europe, definitely didn't have some empathy and his anterior singular didn't give a damn but he fathered enough children, 16% of people in the world carry his genes. That's an effective character. I don't even
0: know where to go with that because that's just mind-blowing. Mind but maybe maybe it's also that uh, uh, similarly, all the other genes, you know, we all go into this big soup and this big pool. And, and as you say, we, we also... Uh, have learned from whether we, you know, talk about it from an epigenetics sort of point of view or our ancestors or the values that have been passed along at both the nature and the nurture, um, uh, we still have to look at ourselves within a context and, and, and whether something, um, uh, I suppose, flourishes or, or remains dormant also depends on one's
1: context. Um Absolutely, because genes don't define any behavior. Genes sit there. The blueprint doesn't build a car. The context tells the genes where to turn on, where not to turn So we can forget about genes linking to behavior. We need all these expressive elements and whatever. We need context, which is why I like all the contextual-based, process-based therapies. We're always looking at context to the self in context, to how we are responding, because otherwise there wouldn't be an Auschwitz, a My Massacre, a diarrhea sin, there would not be these anomalies where otherwise decent human beings suspend their self-reflection, as Eichmann suggested, and become little monsters. What's the helicopter view for everyone is where therapy comes in and says, you are not the massacring American teenage people killing the Vietnamese. You're the guy in the helicopter coming down and threatening them I will shoot the next American soldier who kills anyone. Why are you different? Context.
0: It's really interesting. That kind of just, just jumped out at me. We often talk about wars because they're so memorable. And, you know, we kind of remember the, the things that are frightening and scary. And in so many ways, when I think about it, some of the most incredible marvels of the world is that we have a medical system across the entire globe that is in constant work of. Helping people, whether it's through accidents or disease or prevention, uh, that there's more of a gene. There has to be more of a gene out there, which which is really looking after—not gene, um, uh, but at least the way that we structure society that looks after one another. That. When we look at how many millions of people were killed, for example, in a single war, when you look at how many millions of people have been given extra years of life or, or treated or, you know, um uh you know, who are now in remission from, from whatever disease they had at the time, have, the, the the numbers would have to be billions and billions and billions and staggering over the last, you know, uh 300 years, whether it be from shaman, you know, once upon, a, once upon a time or whether it be from modern science these days, um, you know, the, the rates of you know, killings and, and, and wars are, must be minimal compared to even just one little thing like medicine, let alone psychology or, um, you know, uh, the, the, all, all the different industries and, and, and amazing sort of people and, and researchers that's just mind-boggling, um, uh, but it kind of keeps get, getting very sticky. We keep thinking about the wars because I think the same way. I'm like, oh, yeah, you know, we kind of relate these things to to um, these big events that are memorable, like, you know, the Holocaust, everyone knows about it.
1: Well, think about it, you know, yes, we are getting much, much better at empathy. We get upset and we care about, you know, a, a, a piece of furniture looking bad in the rain in an advert when we... Anthropomorphize it to death, and, and we <laughs> get empathic about some kid with a snotty nose in Africa and send them money for, to dig a well so they can have clean water. And um, I'm not worried about eating a, a fetid animal tonight and getting anthrax. Yes, we've conquered a great deal. But if you think of medical science, it's done two amazing things. Number one, provided sewerage and provided clean water. That gives us our age expectancy at birth. Where we fall apart is our inability to think about the abstracts, us versus them. If you think about what constitutes a war, it is making sure that everybody's prepared to kill, to drop out the empathy, to really be nasty, provided you can make an us being the good guys and them being the bad guys and dehumanizing them, which is the lessons of the Holocaust, of the Rwandan Holocaust, of making people into cockroaches. Hitler chose the Jews to be vermin, to be rats and cancer. Uh, Islam is a cancer against Christianity and so on. All of these, uh, you know, rebel rouses have to get an us versus them going. And it doesn't always work so well. And when it doesn't work for me and for Sapolsky and other lecturers along the way, these are the exciting things. In 1914, the British suspending hostilities to bury their dead, land up playing football for two, three days with the Germans, swapping food, giving Christmas presents, and then agreeing to fire over each other's heads until the British officers eventually came and threatened to shoot anybody who wasn't killing Germans. They set up and you can see in the letters of the British soldiers, we fired a shell over. We got our best gunner, fire a shell at that tree behind the Germans. He hit the tree five times. The German gunners went, the British aren't this bad. Maybe we'll hit their tree. And then they exchanged fire for days, killing nobody until the officers arrived and said, kill Germans, you know, there's a lot of those things, you know, stopping Lieutenant Kelly from the My Lai Massacre took one man in a helicopter, you know. So I think there is a lot of good, um, but nevertheless, with the Donald Trumps and the world who are intellectually dull, but intuitively can cause people to rise up against each other to create an us versus them. Republicans are amazing. QAnon is brilliant, lefty, uh, in, you know, Antifa is just, you know, the us versus them is where we don't do a very good job. And
0: that's and this where- is where I think some, sometimes social policy can do, do exceptional jobs in, in, in terms of, I know that stopping smoking in Australia has, has done exceptional job in an us versus them because it's it's kind of saying they, the ones that smoke, have to now leave yes. the restaurant, they have to leave the facility. And not only that, they can't even be within X nanometers from the front desk. It's it's kind of like you know kicking them out of the clan, out of the group, making it very expensive as well. Um, but kind of publicising all the. Uh, uh, all the undesirables, and it's an us versus them. But it's been a great public policy, at least
1: if we think about you know rates of lung cancer and and and, and the like, well, uh, stroke and heart attack and all of those. But if you talk to the people who are banished outside, yeah, that would be awful. Them, if you ask them how they feel, they say, "I feel like I'm a cockroach. I feel like I am dirty and contaminated." And, of course, that's on the receiving end, and it makes them angry. And so acts of defiance, I will keep smoking. <laughs> Not too many fortunes. But seatbelts is another good example. It's you, awesome, get people yeah. scared. you couldn't get people scared to wear seatbelts. But when you showed them a disgusting face, a smashed up, put my face through the windscreen moment, a bullseye moment, that's when people started to go, ooh, I don't want to look like them. Us versus them. Got people to wear seatbelts. I don't want to look disgusting. Well, I actually thought that was a good. Ones. I I actually thought the seatbelt one was when they started making that awful
0: noise that was so irritating that people were were unwilling to have that noise that you know that that immediate sort of emotional visceral thing of I've got to get rid of this feeling because it's so annoying this this bell click it in.
1: Um course, uh, compliance. Yeah, was the compliance factor. Yeah, yeah. But that's forced compliance. And, and, you know, yes, it's very effective because the car won't go without it and you you don't have a choice. But that's going to irritate you every time if you're an autonomous, if you're a failed narcissist, you know. But yeah, absolutely effective. The car won't drive if you've got alcohol in your breath. You know, all of these things we can do today. And I do that with one of our companies in America that we started. Let me give you an idea of compliance. Uh, A colleague of mine, Amanda uh, Johnston, And I were were talking years and years and years ago, and she came up with an idea and we we got it going and we got it built. It's called BA Looper. And it is a mental health check-in app. And we had to work out how could we get people to check in every day with five trusted others on an app and let them know how you're feeling. And it turned out we could get them to swipe up or down and change the color of these lava lamp balls floating around And we built this thing, which we thought was pretty good, using the user experience people to guide us and Lava Lampy and everything else. Anyway, October 2017, we put it into the Apple Store and everywhere else. And two days later, Amanda phones me and says, we just went viral in 50 countries in 160 cities. Thousands of people are checking in with each other every single day. Well, Amanda, the next year was, well, first of all, we were nominated for the Global Mobile Awards in Barcelona when there still was such a thing before COVID. Uh, 150,000 people go to this meeting. Barcelona is packed, you know. Anyway, we came, I think, second to Microsoft's camera that talks for deaf people or something, blind people. Very nice. They spent $50 We didn't spend that much. But um, then 2019, Amanda is made Next Generation Leader by Time magazine, under 30, Next Generation Leader. She's given that award for Looper. By then, 20,000-plus people have checked in, but checking in at the 3-2-1 danger level of suicide and keep on using the Looper so they didn't die. Hopefully that was working and so on. All we did was take the habit of people being able to swipe And suddenly we've got millions of people using a mental health check-in because we're working on chain diffusion, role modeling, relatedness, heuristics, all kinds of stuff. Now we're doing a enterprise version to go to companies where a company like Accenture with 400, 500,000 staff around the world, their human resources can check in and have everybody checking in and the computer puts all the blues here and allows you to get hold of EAP and allows you to get hold of all kinds of things and offer these people anonymously. Do you want movie tickets? Do you want the day off? What do you want to do? You know, here's the EAP numbers, all kinds of things. Um, all HIPAA compliant and all kinds of stuff going on. Terribly simple interventions to reach very big populations, but based on social behavioral, social observation. Learning guess, yeah. Just simple stuff. Neurology leads us to simple solutions, to simple understanding of why 73 million people, knowing what they do about old DJT, they still voted for him. Why? You go back dozens of years to disenfranchised, miserable, disgusted, upset people, and it all starts to look very reasonable that you would reward the psychopath for his intuition that maybe you want to hate somebody, maybe somebody has to pay, maybe evil has a payoff date.
0: Roy, how can people find out more about you, the work that you're currently on or, you know, even reach out and work with you?
1: Clubhouse. (laughs) (laughs) So, so look, um, you know, I have my private practices which are overloaded and and whatever else, but um, they can just go to my website, roysugarman.com. It's not terribly explicit because I don't go into it much and don't self-promote. It's probably a failure of mine, but nevertheless, I'm a lousy psychopath. I'm not even a good failed narcissist, I think. So, uh, very difficult. But if you look up things like Transhuman Incorporated, uh, if you look up social health innovations, Transhuman Incorporated, I work with an amazing British group called Box Media. If you look at Box Media stuff, our logo looks very much like your patterns on the wall there. Uh Box Media just revolutionizing online training for people. So have a look at Box Media. Have a look at Transhuman. You just Google and you'll see what I'm doing in those companies and what we're doing. Um, and the rest of the time I'm just looking after people uh, in Rosebane in Bankstown.
0: Fantastic. Sounds, sounds uh, lovely.
1: I'll
0: have to uh, duck in at some point next time I'm coming up a little bit north.
1: Absolutely. Uh, otherwise, go on Clubhouse if you can get invited uh, and come and chat. We have these wonderful chat rooms. Absolutely. Absolutely. Roy, much
0: appreciated for your time, your expertise. It was great talking and uh, very insightful and looking forward to, to hearing more from
1: you in time to come. Great. Thanks so much. It was an absolute pleasure talking to you. Time just flew by, didn't it?
0: <laughs> it has. It has. Almost an hour and a half thereabouts anyway. So,
1: Yeah. And you almost got a word in edgeways, which is pretty good.
0: <laughs> no, no, my, my job is not to be talking too much. So it, it worked out quite well. Thank you very much. And, um, uh, yeah, pre- appreciate your time. And, yeah, got to do it again at
1: some point. Great. Well, from a rotten listener to a good listener, thanks so much. <laughs> thanks, Roy.
0: If you enjoyed this podcast, please support it by going to iTunes and putting a review, subscribe. Share it via social media and tell others about it. Start a conversation. It's listeners like you that make this able and possible and why we bring in these guests to go out and share their knowledge and resources. And just lastly, if you are a psychologist and you want to go out and be part of a bigger team, develop your experience and get into some exciting work, come to strategicpsychology.com.au forward slash careers and reach out. I'd love to hear from you.